Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I am your humble host, Coach Jason Coop, and I am once again excited to have everybody back today for the second in the series of anti-doping solutions in the sport of trail and ultra running for the uninitiated or if you're just jumping into this podcast right now for the next let's see five six seven podcasts wait a minute that's not right one two three four five podcasts that's how many it was i'm losing track of them all now for the next five podcasts are all going to be focused on anti-doping solutions in the sport of trail and ultra running on may 27th i released a podcast with usada's chief science officer dr fedoric this week is with paul dimio who is the author of the book anti the anti-doping crisis in sport causes consequences and solutions uh, next podcast coming up next week is with Lisa Roberts, who got a little bit entangled in Western States' anti-doping policy. The week after that, June 17th, is with Charlie Ware, who has tried throughout his best efforts and put a lot of time and effort into finding the solution uh, to this in trail and ultra running. And finally, on June 24th, I have a conversation with Dylan Bowman and Mario Frioli about what potential solutions could look like within the community. I hope that all of you listen to all of these podcasts because the vein of the entire series is to get some initial education and ideas on the table that we can all use to galvanize some sort of solution out there. This conversation in particular is with Paul Dimio, who is a researcher at the University of Stirling. He's a professor at the University of Stirling in Scotland, and he is the author of this really interesting book titled The Anti-Doping Crisis in Sport, Causes, Consequences, and Solutions. And I wanted to use this conversation as a little bit of a history lesson for how we got to where we got to in the current state of affairs of anti-doping policy, predominantly in the Olympic sports, where that has gone awry, and how we can use those lessons of where has gone awry to enact solutions within trail and ultra running, which currently doesn't have a solution, and we don't have to abide by any of this IOC stuff at all if we choose not to. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. I hope you enjoyed the conversation last week. I hope you enjoy this one and I hope you take it into consideration as you start to have conversations with your peers, your fellow racers and other members of the community about how we can solve this non-issue right now, but I guarantee you will be an issue 10 years from now if we don't do anything about it right now, which is something that we actually talked about on the podcast. So here we go. I'm going to step right out of the way. Let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Paul Dimio. So you guys are just wrapping up semester, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So just finishing the undergraduates, the postgraduates have a bit more to do in the summer. They do their dissertation in the summer, but uh, the bulk of it's done. Okay, excellent. Which is nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what do you teach at the university? So I generally teach sports policy and um, mainly kind of social issues, anti-doping uh do some sports history as well so i'm a bit of a kind of utility player shall we say in the team (laughs) (laughs) well i've always appreciated your work over the uh, over the years it's been something that obviously me being involved in sport and then elite sport we have to kind of keep track of all different 
angles of things. And USADA is actually in my backyard. I live in Colorado Springs. And so obviously there's kind of like the, the, the anti-doping kind of tie in there just from a, also a personal and a professional interest. So I'm actually really thrilled to get you on the horn and get you on, get you on the podcast today because your work has been, it's just been, it's been really neat to follow and to see how the thought process has evolved over the years. Yeah. Thank you. That's very kind to say that Jason. And it's always nice to hear from people outside, you know, academic life. Um, and obviously your podcast is doing, so that's, you know, I'm really pleased for you that to, kind of attract a good audience and um, I'm sure the readers or the listeners rather benefit from all your different topics. This is, this is a big one. And as I explained in the emails that we exchanged back and forth, I'm trying to line up a lot of different angles of this top of this topic because it's complicated and you combine with that the fact that the audience is fairly naive. They don't really, they, they kind of, the the lay audience is the lay audience anywhere. They just read the news reports and things like that. Yeah. But the community of athletes and race directors who are ultimately kind of like the coalface of a lot of these uh, policies, they ca- they really don't know where to go, you know. And I, I think a, a big vein of of uh, of putting together not just one podcast but a series of different podcasts with a lot of different angles is to really inform the, the public at large. So I was hoping to leverage your expertise in that specifically. And I think what we can kind of start out with is just some history. We're going to leverage your you know your academic career a little bit since it's the end of the semester, and okay. you can probably you can give us a semester and maybe like ten minutes or something like that, the ultra cliff notes version. But okay. we, we've you know, we've seen these, we've seen these doping and anti-doping stories kind of transpire over the years. And anybody who's been involved in elite sports really since the 60s, 70s and 80s has seen a dramatic transformation of how this aspect has been regulated across sport. And you specifically have written a number of different papers on some of those different inflection points. Can, can you just give a broad overview of how doping policy has been regulated and we're going to use the Olympic model as the kind of the model of context here. Cause that's what most people will be familiar with. Just give a broad overview of that because ultimately one of what I want to drive down to is what are the lessons that we've learned from each of these models over the years and how do we carry it forward into a group that doesn't have, they're not going to get adopted likely into the Olympic model, right? So we can do whatever we want to, and we don't want to repeat past mistakes. So can you set that table for us really quickly? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you very much. So by way of broad historical summary, sport was essentially modernized in the forms that we know it late 19th, early 20th century. And at that stage, there wasn't any regulation against doping. We see a couple of incidents that are controversial, but the first actual statement against it is not until 1928, which is the International Amateur Athletic Federation, followed up 10 years later by the IOC. Obviously, they then had the Second World War to prevent any further so this sort of issue has continued in the 1950s before it's really taken seriously. And probably the one element that made people take it seriously at that stage was the death of a young Danish cyclist in the, actually in the Rome Olympics in 1960. So he died actually during the race and 
it was blamed on amphetamines, which turned out not to be the case. But that kick-started the IOC to say, well, we take this seriously. And there was some research in other sports, in particular in Italy and a little bit in a couple of other European countries. So football and cycling, um, soccer, I, I guess you would, just to clarify that one. Yeah. So soccer, cycling, and field athletics, they were the main sports because it was amphetamines that was the issue. So the first testing was in cycling races, 1965, was the World Cup, 1966. The first IOC list of banned substances was 1967 and introduced to the Winter Olympics, 1968, and then the Summer Olympics the same year. So amphetamines were one issue which they wanted to control. The emergence of steroids, anabolic steroids, was really the game changer because there was no test for steroids until 1975. So it was introduced into the Olympics first in 1976. But the challenge with anabolic steroids compared to amphetamines is that there's a washout period. So anyone who took steroids in preparation for an event, all they had to do was remember the washout period, which was usually only two or three weeks, and they wouldn't test positive and there was no out-of-competition testing. So that whole period, the 70s, the 80s, probably most of the 90s, it was relatively easy to actually avoid testing positive if you actually understood the nature of the drugs that you were taking. So it's a little bit of a kind of free-for-all. The pharmacology expanded, EPO came on the market, human growth hormone was used, insulin growth factor, you know, this whole kind of sense of the different types of steroids and they could do slightly different things, the diuretics that could be used to cover up the steroids. So the whole nature of that really exploded, I would probably say, in the 1990s. Thereafter, obviously, we learn about what was happening in East Germany and a little bit about the Soviet Union, although most of the evidence is East, East Germany focused. We have a few more scandals in the 90s, particularly in cycling, um, rumours of deaths caused by EPO poisoning or overuse. And that's when the World Anti-Doping Agency gets created, um, led by the IOC, um, and the interesting thing for me was there's quite an interesting sort of moment when the IOC decided they're under pressure. They need to be seen to be doing more. So they're also, this is around the time of the Salt Lake City bit um, corruption scandal. So in November 1999, they host a conference and they want to call it the Olympic Doping Agent. And several people in that conference, particularly politicians, including um from America um, stood up and basically said the IOC should not be the only organisation in charge of this. You know, we need to have some independence and autonomy. So the World Anti-Doping Agency is created, 50% funded by the IOC. A lot of the leadership is the IOC. A lot of the definition and terms, as I'm sure we'll discuss, are Olympics focused. And so the first World Anti-Doping Code is produced in 2003 which is what we're now kind of living with. So that's my general overview. Um, I've missed a lot, but Man, I've you covered just, the main point. You <laughs> just screamed through some history right there. And I think not to, that was brilliant, by the way. Um, not to, I, I think we'd be remiss not to mention that in addition, one of the pieces of fuel 
in this whole doping arc that you just mentioned was the political environment that existed yeah. at the time, particularly in the 70s, 80s, and kind of maybe even trickling into the 90s a little bit. Because a lot of times we think about this as a, an athlete-centered problem, right? It's the athlete that is ultimately the end user. But the origins of that are actually quite different, where a lot of these state-sponsored regimes were essentially instituting it as part of the gig. It was part and parcel with what you had to do if you wanted to be an athlete. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, as I say, most of the evidence we have of that is from East Germany because, you know, as I'm sure everybody knows, they basically were no longer a country after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And there was reunification trials of people who were seen to have committed crimes during the East German period. So a lot of that data was still there. So we have records of PhD projects from the <laughs> mid-1960s. And they only really used one drug, which is oral tyrannobol, which some people still use today. And yes, they've essentially forced their athletes to do it. There was other countries where athletes maybe weren't forced in the same way, but they were certainly, you know, highly encouraged. And, you know, the political system worked both ways. You know, both sides of the Iron Curtain wanted to show their prowess right. and they wanted to win things. And interestingly enough, though, I mean, you're absolutely right, and I totally agree that's one of the frameworks, but then you had the occasional little country, not little, I shouldn't say little, you had the occasional other country that would just basically say, we need success. And an example of that is Canada. So after the 1976 Montreal Games where they didn't win any gold medals, they wanted success going forward. And they were, Charlie Francis was given a kind of open book to go and do that. And that's why he ended up with the Ben Johnson scandal and the various other athletes. And if you, there was a report in the aftermath of that by a lawyer called Charles Dubbin. And if anybody has a little bit of time, if they looked that up, the Commission of Inquiry into, you know, the Canadian um, situation is extensive. You know, they were trafficking steroids across borders, you know, in training camps. They were selling them to each other and to other people. But that was also going on in America. It was going on in across Europe. You know, by the time we get into the 90s, we see evidence in Australia you know, the Middle East and African countries. So, yes, I absolutely agree. There's a huge political environment that probably held back anti-doping for a couple of decades. But the concept of I, the concept of illegal performance enhancement is a, pretty much a global phenomenon. Yeah, and, and that's one of the pictures I want the, the, the listeners to appreciate is that for decades – there was this environment where it truly was the wild west yeah. and there was no reasonable way that you could compete as an elite athlete as an Olympic level athlete with very few exceptions without some sort of performance enhancing drug. It was so prevalent during those times. It was completely unregulated. And as, as a lot of the athletes have put it, it's, it was just part of the deal. Yeah. And your final point that, that, that environment probably set back anti-doping a couple decades is kind of poignant because we're into a couple of decades right now. If you go back and say, okay, WADA was started, what year did you just say? 2002? 
Well, the first first code was produced on 1st of January, 2003. 2003, so, okay. So 2003, we're coming up on almost two decades, right? 2021 right now. So right now should be, if we sit, we're set back to two decades, we should be kind of caught up. And we're going to talk about that in, yeah. in just a second. But it is a game... It is a game of playing catch up, I guess, is what I'm trying yeah. to uh, what I'm what I'm trying to illustrate here. So we have this landscape where where the sporting environment went from the Wild West. Any sort of efforts were extremely fractured, and they were handled within the country, and then with the within each sport within the country, which is never the way that you would do it if you were to set it up from scratch. And then the World Anti Doping Association was established. Or sorry, the World Anti Doping Agency was established. And the, the framework that emerged from that is they set the rules and it's up to each country to enforce the rules. So USADA here in the United States uh, gets established, that equivalent gets established in the UK and other countries kind of around the world. And each country is essentially responsible for their pool of athletes across all of the, all of the different Olympic types of sports. But still throughout the 2000s and into the 2010s, we still we still see these issues start to emerge. And I want to drill these down into the endurance Olympic sports since it's going to be more audience relevant at this point. And once again, the vein of this is to try to learn where the traps are, where the terrain traps are, and try to avoid it for future policy. So if we look at the sports of track and field, cycling and triathlon, which are kind of the endurance cohorts, where are the where are the current like failures in the system as we see them since WADA was established? Yeah, so that's a good point. Question. So if we start with cycling, so the history, that 20 year history is basically uh, a kind of roller coaster ride. So initially, the UCI were a bit reluctant to become signatories to the World Anti-Doping Code. The president at the time had some concerns about some issues that would be associated with that. The obviously what happened in the two thousands, you know, the and all the things we learned about Lance Armstrong and his teammates, you know, that gives us the impression that the controls were not good enough to stop some of the ways in which those cyclists had managed to strategize, you know, their techniques for blood doping, PO use and testosterone use. In the aftermath of the introduction of the Athlete Biological Passport, which is around about 2009, in the aftermath of the USADA reason decision about US Postal and those other teams, and then there was the CERC report a couple of years later. So cycling in some ways seems to have improved its game. You know, there hasn't been the level of major scandals and a lot of people within that sport say that, you know, it is different to what it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And I I suppose if you look at what's going on around uh, British cycling and Team Sky, well, you know, as much as (laughs) I think the evidence of what we know is kind of incomplete, they are now, ta- you know, they're focusing on very kind of minor issues. So Chris Freeman, he's salbutamol, he's asthma inhaler. You know, Dr. Freeman, Barton Freeman, who orders some testosterone patches that may or may not have been used. A jiffy bag that may or may not have had something in it. It's kind of like smoke and mirrors. Yeah, yeah. 
but it's nothing like what it was <laughs> in the mid 2000s. Right. So I think right. we could probably see an element of improvement and progress. Track and field maybe the same. I'm not too sure. I mean, certainly some of the issues that were revealed in the blood doping files from the IAAF. That was, two, oh, when was that now? 2015. A lot of countries, some that you wouldn't even think of, North African, Middle Eastern countries, were showing high levels of suspicious blood values in that data. And obviously then we have the Russian scandal where they've managed to, you know, allow their track and field athletes to be doping and still go to the Olympics. We have the retrospective testing from 2012 in particular from the Olympics that shows there seemed to be quite a lot of ongoing doping in those Olympics. So track and field seems to be cleaner, but it's probably been a bumpier ride, I think, as well. Triathlon had, I mean, I've I don't know if there's been major scandals. I don't think it's had the same level of issues. Um, perhaps it's not had the same amount of testing or focus or media attention or sort of celebrity status. I certainly think sometimes our understanding of specific sports is skewed by the way in which that news coverage or news feed comes in. You know, Russia is a great story because it's not just about athletes. It's about the whole Russian state system. Right. right. Um, <clears throat> So there's other countries where things have been going on that's kind of slightly under the radar and probably consistently going on. And just to come back to one of your points that you've made very well, which is that the structure of the governance system means that each country has to be trustworthy. Right, right. <laughs> and there's not really much way that WADA can go into every single country and make sure they're doing all the right things they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and I, w- I want to bring that point out a little bit more. And if we if we kind of go back to the origins of this once again the framework is is wada which is it, i'll call it an international organization just for for geographic purposes but it's an international organization they come up with a set of rules it's up to each country to go out and say okay here's how we're going to deploy our testing for olympic level cyclists here's how we're going to deploy our testing for olympic level track and field athletes here's how we're going to deploy our testing for this that and the other and it almost creates like a fox in the hen house type of deal. And don't get me wrong. I love the people over at USADA. They're my, they're my, they're my friends. I don't mind admitting that. I have friends over there. <laughs> I have colleagues over there over the years and, and things like that. They are all trying to do fantastic work. But the structure of it is always going to be suspect to be manipulated by within the country. And we saw that exposed to a great extent with the with the Russia, with the Russia scandal in, in, in Sochi, where they just decided as a country they were going to game the system because they were in control of the doping policy. So what's the... <sighs> What's the solution to that? I mean, does the whole thing need to get dug up and say, listen, we can't have each country be responsible for testing their own athletes? Like, what's the learning lesson in this structural flaw that is pretty pretty clear in the current landscape? Even to, even to a lay eye, it's pretty easy to see that once they peel back just one layer of the onion. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I always think WADA was so Olympic IOC focused that that's a similar structure to the IOC. So the IOC has national Olympic committees. And initially, before um, anti-doping organisations were set up in each country, the Olympic anti-doping was done through those national Olympic committees. 
And that was definitely seen as too close. You know, that was an organisation right. that was training those athletes to go into the Olympics and drug testing them at the same time. So at least we've moved forward to, it's an independent agency that has to report to WADA and not to anyone else within that country. However, you're right, that if the various stakeholders within a specific country got together and said, oh, actually, if we've got the laboratory on board, we can make sure those positive tests disappear. If we actually can speak to the drug control officers and tell them who to test and when to test them, we could probably warn the athletes or direct them to people that we know are definitely clean or direct them to lower level athletes that we don't really mind getting busted. We just want to avoid our stars getting busted. Do you know, it's all rumour mongering, but there's definitely some sports in which, you know, suggested that, you know, the celebrities, superstar athletes have, you know, been kept out of the limelight, as shall we say. So there's definitely ways in which the system relies upon a level of trust and a level of engagement, a level of commitment, you know, resourcing. So, so far we've talked about North American, European countries, but, you know, to what extent do other countries that are less well-developed economically have resources to do this? If you take a blood sample, it has to be stored in a fridge. Um, if you're far from the accredited laboratory, you have to transport it within you know, a certain time period, a, couple, a day or two. Each test costs the equivalent of what I would call eight, seven or eight hundred pounds, which I'm guessing over a thousand dollars. You know, so for some countries, that's not really a priority. They've got other things they want to spend their money on. And yeah, the system is definitely full of cracks, I would say even if the countries are reliable and dependable, which are not always the case, there's a financial resourcing situation as well. Um, and it's quite interesting that countries that have a reputation for corruption in a general sense <laughs> are given, you know, free reign to go and look after their own anti-doping system. <laughs> right. It's so screwy, man. Like every time I look at it, I just shake my head. Okay, so let, let's get down to the practical matter, right? We've gone over this umbrella, and I wanted to do that to set the table of how it's currently be, being handled at the Olympic level from a structural standpoint. I think that, that, that that's really important. So the, this audience, this, this ultramarathon audience that is going to be listening uh, to this, it's, it doesn't fall underneath that jurisdiction, right? Does not fall underneath the IOC's jurisdiction with very, 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 very rare circumstances. And I've been saying kind of from the get go that if this community wants anti-doping solutions, it's going to have to come from the community. The community is going to have to be galvanized somehow. The athletes, the races, the sponsors, the stakeholders are going to have to all come together in some form and develop a solution from scratch that is contained within the within the particular sport. And there are some examples of that happening. I mean, the UFC here in the uh, in the United States is a good one where it's not underneath the IOC umbrella, and they worked as a partner with USADA to develop an anti-doping policy for that for that particular sport way different scale of economics but there are templates that that exist worldwide that might be the one that that most north american most of the north american audience is familiar with so it, since we have this opportunity 
to start from scratch. And it, I think it is an opportunity. It's not an easy one, but it's an opportunity to start from scratch, build something up from the community. What are the key pieces of framework that these key stakeholders who are listening to this podcast should take into account when developing whatever policy starts to emerge? Okay, good question. <laughs> I gave you the big, broad ones because I know you can handle it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because some of the some of my thoughts or writing about WADA was that it was created in a moment of crisis. And I think if you can create an anti-doping policy or any policy that's not actually a reaction to something, you know, a short-term quick fix, this is really what we need to do, toughen up, you know, get, you know, draconian and serious about this. You know, could you do something which avoids some of the excesses of the current anti-doping system? Or, or some of the flaws and so, okay so let me try yeah, and let's back up to the excesses piece because you can you can certainly expand on that I, I know what you're talking about but the audience probably doesn't yeah so the excesses to me are firstly surveillance so how does an athlete or you know the ultra runners ultra running community how much do they want the intrusion into their life so all athletes who are in a that's a signatory to the World Dance Doping Code have given up lots of privacy rights. They can be tested anywhere, anytime, 365 days a year. If somebody comes to the house, they have the right to, you know, chaperone them until their race goes, follow them to the bathroom. You know, they have to expose their genitalia. They have to be watched. And then, you know, the test is given, a sample is obviously given to the lab. The athlete has no sort of insight into what happens in the lab, if there's any mistakes or any issues. If a test comes back positive because of the strict liability rule, it's the athlete's responsibility. They will get a sanction of some sort. There's almost no route of appeal, regardless of how that substance got into the body. You know, they're deemed to be fully responsible for it. So the... So there's been a lot of cases and a lot of my work focused on that where there's been really disproportionate sanctions for contamination or medicines or, you know, complete accidents um, or things like spiking and sabotage done by someone else. But it can take a, a so that's one thing. <laughs> Sorry. But this I think, really- I think that the key point there, just not to yeah. interrupt you, but I want to kind of encapsulate oh, that is that first off, the, the, at least the way that the, that it's implemented across water, the athletes give up a lot of their privacy and a lot of athletes will say, Hey, I'm willing to do that. As long as it creates a level yeah. playing field, I'll present that counter argument. But in addition to that, it's relatively easy for an athlete to make a mistake. Yeah. And I'm using mistake in a very broad term, either a whereabouts mistake, taking something that's contaminated and on and on and on. And the penalty for that could be very high. And some yeah. some anti-doping agencies, and I, I you know, I uh, I had uh, uh, Dr. Fedoric from from USADA uh, on the podcast as well, and he kind of took us through their whole adjudication process. So the listeners can reference that previous podcast if they want a little bit of a dialogue on that. But I, the point with that is, is some of those minor mistakes result in in your opinion, in heavy punitive damages that are disproportionate to the error that was made or the infraction 
that was actually uh, uh, incurred. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's what we've called collateral damage in some of our writing. Right. You know, so you have a policy. It's pretty intensive. Um, it's pretty comprehensive. And it's designed not to allow little loopholes. So people coming back and say, it's not my fault. You know, this happened and this happened. And, you know, the dog ate my homework kind of, you know, approach to it. And it's designed to stop that from happening, which is fine. You know, and I don't dispute that, you know, something needs to be in place right. to stop people making excuses. But I, my own view on it would be, there must be a better opportunity for the athlete to be able to come forward and say, you know, something was found in my system. I believe it was related to, you know, this batch of supplements, which I just started taking a month ago. You know, I've been tested before and I was clean. So it suggests that something has changed. I could, I'd like to have that supplement tested to see what I can find, but there's a cost to that, of course. And then there's the legal costs. You have to pay for a lawyer to come and represent you. So a lot of amateur athletes, they would just give up right. and they would just say, this has been found in my system. It's a standard four-year ban. You know, I can't afford the time, the money, whatever. So, you know, there must be a way to have an appeals process which allows an element of representation for the athlete in a relatively quick and easy and independent kind of way to see if it might make sense that that is what's happened. Some of the other things could easily be solved. So, you know, there's a case of a Dutch athlete who, you know, she started in competition late in life. She hadn't really education about the process of declaring medicines. So she didn't apply for a therapeutic use exemption for something she'd been taking for several years. And then she got a ban um, after testing positive. So to actually get, understand that situation and do the retrospective therapeutic use exemption should have been quite easy. But it wasn't because in the framework, as it currently exists, you know, you're not allowed to do that because they think that people will just do what Lance Armstrong did back in the <laughs> early 2000s. Right. So... There must be something which athletes can be given a, a voice, given a, an element of trust, an element of you know representation where they can actually just make a case. And I think that that softening up of the the appeals process to me is an opportunity to do something different. But just to come back to the issue about education, at the moment, all the responsibility for education lies either with the athlete or their kind of local environment, and sometimes that doesn't happen. So something I've been thinking about and mulling over for a while is could you have a system whereby the level of education is actually taken into account when the sanction is decided. So if somebody's test positive, it doesn't really matter what it is, they should be able to come forward and say almost as a mitigation, you know, I've never been to a workshop. Nobody's got me to fill out any sort of assessment or done an online course or anything. I've just appeared and I've been tested and now I'm in trouble. You know, so that I, I fundamentally believe that that should be part of the appeals process. Now, other people, of course, say, "Oh, well, it's all online. You can go and look <laughs> it up." It's, you know, it's not that's not an excuse. But I think that would shift the responsibility away from the athlete and to the organisations involved, like you would do in a normal kind of workplace environment. 
to actually say, well, we need to protect the athletes by giving them the information they need and ensuring that they have that information before they're going to be tested. Rather than some people finding out the hard way, this is what happens, you know, after they've been tested. I'll, I'll go over a quick story that it came out a little bit in my conversation with Dr. Fedorik. And un- unfortunately, I, I can't bring the key individuals on the podcast to, to relay this story because okay. they're employed <laughs> with different entities and, you know, how NDAs go and things like that. But I'll synopsize. I think I can synopsize it without violating anybody's trust because all of this is public. So if we use the UFC, as I mentioned earlier, as framework, one of the really good things they did with that program, and I'm not going to mince words here, that program was really hard to implement. It was institutionally from an organizational standpoint, it was extremely challenging to do that across their 600 uh, some odd fighters. One of the things that they did that was really interesting and I think very effective and very smart was they had a six month no fault period. So they can't, you know, actually might've been nine months and I'm thinking about it is either six or nine months. But what that means is, is USADA came in and said, listen, we're going to implement everything that we would normally implement whereabouts program testing, blah, blah, blah. But for six months, everybody gets a free pass. And the, the, the reason for that is they wanted to have ample opportunity to educate not only the groups of fighters, but their entire entourage and their entire team that, that was working with them. So their coaches, their nutritionists, their training partners, everybody that they came into contact with, it was it was a big part, not the only part, of this big educational effort, to your point, to get the entire ecosystem on board with what this policy is ultimately going to look like what the pitfalls are and how they have to kind of interact with, uh, with the system. And while it was still challenging because there was a, just like cycling, there was a big culture of doping within that, within that particular sport, but it gave a little bit of a runway to ultimately implement an an anti-doping policy so that they could kind of initially get everybody on the same page. And even with that, even with that six month uh, runway, they still, it was still hard to pass along a lot of these educational moments to the fighters and the group of people that were, uh, that, that were working with the fighters. So I use that to kind of further illustrate your point that this initial education piece, while we can debate on whether that can be part of the sanctioning side of it, and there's, that's another debate, but the educational piece of it is, is I, I believe, and I could totally agree with you, a key linchpin when you start to implement these types of things in our community, we have to educate not only the athletes, but the race directors who are somewhat naive to this across the board. They don't want to deal with it. Race directors don't. That, that's why the UFC has, has you saw to do it. They don't want to deal with it. Race directors should be the same way. They, they shouldn't have to deal with this stuff. Um, coaches and anybody else working with athletes needs to have that same educational opportunity because there's, you know, it's complicated, I guess is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I agree with all of that. And I think related to it is this idea of what actually is good education. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when I work with a group of students, you know, we do a lot of, you know, if I, if I want to teach students about anti-doping, it takes all semester. 
you know, and there's two points of assessment and there's points of attendance, you know, they have to come minimum attendance and there's extra resources they can go and look at. And I want to know that each of those students is kind of keeping up at each stage. So there'll be touching points every maybe two weeks. Um, and so that's how we design our courses. Um, some of the educationalists I've worked with, or I've spoken to, sorry, in working with elite athletes, a lot of the feedback that they get is, if an athlete doesn't think they're ever going to fall foul of the doping system or the anti-doping rules, they're not really that engaged with the educational program. So I guess it would be like, I'm trying to think of parallel examples, but if I... I'm a, a, quite a safe driver, you know, I always stick to the speed limits and I'll never drink drive. And somebody in the village I live in is putting on a safety driving campaign. And I think, oh, you know, I don't need that. I'm not going to do that. So what I've heard from people working with athletes is actually if you package it within other things, and I suppose in particular, performance enhancing strategies and nutrition, then you get a lot more engagement because then you're actually saying to the athlete, right, where are you just now? Where do you want to get to? How do you get there? And actually, what are the risks? Even if you do get there, right. <laughs> you get injured, yeah. you know, you miss the cut, you know, where's the points of temptation where you might really be looking for some, desperately looking for some help. And I think that type of education, which much more rounded this about a journey that people go through, and the things they're trying to achieve and what happens when they plateau out or they fall off their achievement or whatever. Um, and who are they working with? Can they trust the people they're working with to give them the right advice? You know, that sort of thing should be embedded in almost the day-to-day -day learning of being an athlete, not just plonked on as here's a bunch of rules, go away, learn them. You know, And if you don't learn them and you get caught, then it's your, all your problem. So... You know, people have to be committed to that. And oftentimes, I guess, if we track back to the history of this, what we see from the past is the sports that have implemented systematic testing and systematic education are the ones that were forced to after there was a scandal. Right. After there was a major scandal that ruined the image of their sport and their best athletes were taken out of the frame for whatever reason. So really ultra running and ultra marathon, you know, you want to avoid that knee-jerk reaction type situation. You want to be preemptive and say, uh, so can we put in an environment, a culture, a kind of positive approach to this in which people feel they've, they can engage with it, that they value it, that they see the benefits for them. They don't see it as the kind of, you know, just rules. You have to go away and learn the rules and, you know, follow the rules all the time. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be a fearful thing. And that then links to this whole thing about education, sanctions, appeals, you know, even the publicity that goes around a positive test. You know, this shouldn't be something that people have to constantly fear. It should be something which is protective and has an approach which actually engages with athletes and engages with the situations that they're going to find themselves in and not just treat them as all potential suspects all the time. <laughs> right. I, I think the theme that I'm taking away from this is to be proactive, not reactive. Yeah. Because if you're reactive, you're always overshooting 
the, the you're all you're always overshooting on the sanctioning and clamping down too much from a rules management perspective. If you're proactive, you can come up with the balance of rules and sanctions that meet the culture and the and kind of the cur- current performance level of the the constituent base that you're designing those rules for. Cause if we, you're right, if we go back and we look at those, if we look at those um, uh, sports, we always use cycling example, but weight, weightlifting is a good example as well. They got caught so far behind the eight ball that they had no choice, but to overshoot the solution to try to rein it back in because it was this big boulder running downhill and there was no way, you know, there was almost no way to stop it. I think ultra running is in a, it's in a position that cycling was in in the 80s and 90s without the rotten culture. There's yeah. no testing at all. It's very fractured, but the people are good. Maybe I I hope that this is I hope that my generally positive outlook is true, so who knows. But the the the, 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 pe- the people are good. There's not a lot of cheating going. There's not a lot of cheating going on. There is cheating going on, but there's just not a lot of it and it's certainly not embedded in the culture. But what I always tell the people because people can look at that situation and go, well, you don't need to do anything, right? What I always say is that, well, that's not a static proposition. The culture is not static. The culture is dynamic. And as more people, more athletes, more elite athletes kind of enter the culture, that obviously changes the kind of the goulash of people that are, you know, that are participating in the sport. So I'm kind of getting from you, it's like, get ahead of, get ahead of the game and you can come up with reasonable solutions almost. Yeah, absolutely. And Another thing which I was reflecting upon the other day after you contacted me was there's also an opportunity here to actually ask athletes not just how they want to be tested, how they want to be educated, but actually which drugs and which methods do do they want the focus to be on? You know, what do they see as the potential risk issues in the sport? And I do feel myself that the World Anti-Doping Agency created a huge long list, which basically is intended to cover anything that anyone might do in any sport at any time. And so, you know, if you're in bridge, you play bridge, you know, what's the point in being tested for steroids, really? You know, it doesn't make any sense. And so this one-size-fits-all doesn't have to be the case. And I believe, I might be wrong, because I've only heard this from one person. So I was about to say, don't quote me on it, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, eSports. Yeah, I know where you're going with this. A list yeah. that was based on what the athletes kind of had an input into. Yeah. And they, I don't know what they focused on. I haven't seen it, but I should imagine that they focused on cognitive enhancers yep. and all those sorts of things. So doping products, doping methods, which enhance endurance seem to be the thing that you should focus on. And so you might then avoid some of the cases in other sports where people have been caught and banned and publicly humiliated for a substance which bore no relationship to their performance enhancement. So sanctions, at the moment, I feel sometimes sanctions are not directly related to cheating. They're related to breaking the rules. And if you want to design rules that are focused on cheating, then that's the substances you should focus on or the methods like, you know, blood doping and so on and so forth. 
Vars and have all this big long list of things which is kind of fairly peripheral but you can still chip up an athlete um, kind of unfairly really so I think that's an opportunity that perhaps this community has so here's the here's the devil's advocate statement on that if you'll entertain me for a second is that if you start out lenient which is kind of like what you're angling towards right i'm using lenient it might not be the the best term to use but i'm going to kind of go with it if you start out lenient and saying okay we're going to precisely define these drugs we're going to get a, give a lot of opportunity for adjudication what it ultimately leads to is this cliche slippery slope where the athletes find all of the loopholes and try to circumvent it. And that slippery slope becomes more slippery and more slippery and more slippery. And then you end up in the situation where you are having to enact kind of more corrective measures as we've talked about in weight in weightlifting and in cycling. So the skeptic to that statement, Paul would say, you're, we're better off as a community since there are no policies to start out on the harsher side of things as a deterrent to draw a thick line in the sand and say that this is not acceptable in this community and then adjust from there. And I know that, that this is like a totally esoteric situation, but in your opinion, you're the expert here, where does the balance of that lie? With with a group of people, a group of athletes who have no governance right now, should we err, err on the side of creating super strict things as hard deterrence against against dopers, or should it be more reasonable and pragmatic and allowing just I guess a little softer, right? I mean, I I, I struggle to come up with the vocabulary because it's hard to be anti anti doping, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just that's a hard position as a coach which is my profession, right, to take. And anytime you take a soft stance on doping, you're subject to criticism. So I'm having a hard time formulating my words, but you kind of get what I'm saying is like, where, where does the, when we're coming up with this rule structure, in your opinion, where should the balance lie between being really harsh and really hard or more lenient? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've ended up in quite a few arguments, and uh, you know, on people on Twitter have accused me of being soft on athletes and all this kind of stuff. Um, and my kind of speculation on this is probably comes from you know trying to be on the side of respecting people and respecting the decisions that they make. Um, and not necessarily assume that everyone would, you know, opt for the shortcut cheating type route if they had the opportunity. So I guess by saying, let's not have a big long list of banned substances, I'm just thinking that there's some things which are really about, you know, given maybe a short, sharp stimulant benefit that wouldn't make a huge amount of difference to an endurance athlete but they might want to say that maybe on a sliding scale, yes, okay, if you take a stimulant, there is a sanction, but it's not as much as using EPO because we know that EPO is actually the thing that's going to make the difference to you know that endurance side of performance. I guess what I'm thinking of is here is things like 
you know, medicines. So some people take medicines over a long period of time and they're taken for therapeutic reasons. They're not taken for performance enhancing reasons. Or, you know, diuretics is another one. Diuretics have been on the list a long time. So there was a case of a, I think it was an American skier, Zach Lund. I'm not sure if you've heard of that one. So he took a, um, um, a cream for his um, loss of hair. So uh, finasterine, I think it was. I might be wrong. Anyway, the point is, on the list because it's a diuretic. So he missed out on the Olympics. One of the win- early Winter Olympics must have been 2004, possibly, because he'd been caught using this substance. Now, that was on the list because it was a diuretic because it could potentially use a masking agent to cover up steroid use. So there was no scientific evidence that actually would work that way. So a few months after he had, you know, served his ban, missed the Olympics, so on and so forth, it was taken off the list because it basically been put on the list as a diuretic, because it was a diuretic, you know, therefore it must have been, you know, a problematic substance. And then it was taken off the list. So this on and off, the substances that have kind of come on and off or the thresholds have changed is because as we learn more about those substances, then, you know, we understand their potential benefit or not. Sorry, I'm talking a bit too much. But my point about the Sacklund case is that there was no real need to give them the ban in the first place. And I think it's those sorts of cases which I think I would like to see you try to avoid. Um, and also some substances where there's no threshold level so clenbuterol uh, is in the food chain. You know, you can get a ban for nanograms or picograms found in your system. You know, Picograms is like the new hot term right now across Twitter and anti-doping. <laughs> Everybody wants to know what a picogram is. We won't, we won't get into that. We won't get into that. I'm not pretending to be an actual chemist on this but you know the uh, famous case was Alberto Contador of course um, where a trace amount was, was found in his system so if you get to that level of scrutiny then I think in a sense you've lost you've lost the sense of what you're trying to achieve and if it's keeping a, an idea on you're trying to protect the health of athletes you're trying to protect the level playing field do we really need these cases where we're agonising over trace amounts of this or a medicine that's been taken over a long period of time that we, the athlete didn't get a TUE. You know, the accidental consumption of cocaine, you know, has happened. It's led to some people being banned for up to four years. Missing a test. There was a Scottish athlete missed a t- missed one test and he got a four-year ban. You know, these are the sorts of instances which I think we could avoid if we have a system which is essentially pragmatic and focuses upon the outcomes that you want to achieve and not just let this list grow and grow and grow for reasons that we've forgotten why it's growing, for sports that aren't necessarily relevant to the sport that you want to focus on, you know, for trace amounts of things because the lab is so brilliant that we've got these machines that can (laughs) detect anything. 
yeah, I think these are the excesses. You know, you, you used the word excess at the beginning of the conversation. <laughs> and I just think you can avoid the excesses. I'm not saying that it's, it's I'm not being anti-anti-doping. I'm being anti the excesses of anti-doping. Well, I think from the community standpoint, as we all start to think about this, you're, the, the way that you describe the potential solutions as being pragmatic I think is a very good uh, a very good theme to keep uh, to keep in mind. And in addition to that, once again, we can start from scratch, right? I mean, we can literally do whatever we want to do, and that's I'm not saying that that's easy because it's very hard to become an expert in these subjects. You can't do, even do it in a semester of your, you know, the semester <laughs> of your class. It takes years no, and decades. Histograms and nanograms. It's, well, but my I think my, my an aside to that point is is if you try to become an expert in a few months, you will ultimately fail in that endeavor. And we've and we've seen that. And I'm going to have a podcast uh, in a few weeks where that has happened, where an organization has tried to become kind of an expert in anti-doping in a very short period of time. And their, their lack of expertise was, was, was very much exposed in the rule framework that they, that they created for their particular race. That's, that's an aside, but I think the, 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 the other point that I want to kind of bring out, maybe we could talk about a little bit more is to really focus on the heavy hitters. At the end of the day, if we're detecting something on the level of a picogram, which I, ca- I cannot come up with an analogy to describe how minuscule that is. And that's even with the <laughs> chemistry background that I have. And the lab tests are sophisticated enough to do that. And it can be caused from any number of different things, both from people that are cheating and not cheating. But if you're detecting something on that small of a scale, the impact that it's actually having is probably not worth your time to actually try to regulate and so what I'm hearing from you is, is focus on the heavy hitters, focus on the things that are obvious, that are right in front of you, that you can say, yes, this person is cheating. It's very obvious from the chemistry that's coming back. They need to be sanctioned in these smaller cases, particularly in a sport that is not that sophisticated with all due respect to the athletes and coaches that are out there is a better, is, it, this is my my opinion. You can tell me what you think. It's just a better way to go if we focus on the real impactful types of tests and substances first and then add things in later as the situation evolves almost. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would totally agree with that. Um, and almost, I, I can't, as you say, it's evolving. Do you want it to start? start manageable and then evolve kind of upwards or do you want to, to start, you know, really dramatically draconian and then you might have to track back on it. I think you probably, you know, it's maybe a sort of social experiment in how anti-doping might have been right. if WADA wasn't forced to be so tough. You, you're totally right. Cause once again, we're not correcting a problem. We're creating a solution in advance of it. So yeah. So yes, you could focus on those definitely heavy hitters. So in terms of, you know, the substances, the level of substances that were found, but you could also maybe relate that to the athletes kind of their performance and their training and, you know, when was it found and, you know, what impact might it have had or not had. You know, I heard a case of a basketball team that was tested you know, they were tested after the final of the major championship, whatever it was, I can't remember what it was. But they almost seen a sense of, well, what are you trying to do here? You know, what are you trying to establish that, you know, somebody's taken something after the event? You know, it's 
a little bit pointless. I think if you had a target test and if you're focusing on people whose performance was improving or you're focusing on people who are going to come protected in the top 10 of certain events, then it also becomes a more efficient use of money because this idea of just a random, you know, test them and test them here and there and everywhere probably doesn't actually help achieve what you're trying to achieve, which is to keep your main events as clean as possible and to keep your top athletes kind of healthy and well. Um, and maybe people returning from injury or saying, you know, you can fairly establish the risk. Maybe the point of intervention when people return from injury doesn't have to be a test. It could actually just be some counselling or some advice or some guidance as to how best to do that um, rather than necessarily just suspect them of being a doper and turn up to their house and test them straight away. <laughs> I, I, just keep, I just keep having this theme of just be reasonable to start out with. I mean, yeah. you know, I've had this conversation with you. I've had this conversation with Chisada. I've had this conversation amongst the community the, the overwhelming theme that I get as much as we want to say, you know, we want to take really hard line stances in this particular area is the more, the, the, the better solution is the more pragmatic and reasonable one to start with for a whole host of different issues. The audience is new. You can move up and down as the situation dictates. You're balancing the rights of athletes with the need to with the with the need and the desire to create an anti-doping culture and a level playing field within the sport itself. And it's hard to do that at either end of the rules bell curve, either not having any rules at all or having the most, if we take both of those right, not having any rules at all or banning everybody for life for any infraction. <laughs> If you start from those two endpoints, you those are they're impossible to negotiate from. If you can kind of split the middle of it, even though some people might slip through the cracks on other on either side, which is always possible, from a policy standpoint, that's more of the philosophy that I keep getting from people as I as I continue to talk to them in the community. Yeah, I, I it sounds very sensible to me, and I'm glad to hear that other people are. Um, not everybody, just some people. Some people are on either ends of the bell curve, Paul, yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, of course. I always come back to the, uh, I've just been working on a book um, which sort of tracked back into those kind of 1950s and 1960s time periods, which was a kind of crucible. You know, that was the beginning of what we are discussing now. So, yes, there was some accidents, you know, some cyclists, you know, crashed when they were seen to have had too many amphetamines. So, and then there was a death in 1968. So there was a kind of health dynamic underpinning that, which I think was, was a good thing. But when it came to the issue around the level playing field, those early years, that kind of early 1960s, mid 1960s, they only wanted to achieve one thing. And that was to make sure that the person who got the gold medal hadn't taken amphetamines when the person that got and the person at the silver medal didn't take them and the person in bronze medal didn't. They only tested the podium, basically. Right. And they just wanted to make sure that nobody had gained that short-term burst of energy or burst of stimulation that had given them a brief advantage over their direct opponents. And you could actually just see it's a very, very simple thing. And in a way, we're still trying to achieve that. 
in a much, much, much more complicated world. Exactly. I was about to say the the levels of complication have increased exponentially, but I, yeah. I agree with you, the same so, philosophy. In there. a sense, it's like, you know, one of the things which I've often thought about is the whole concept of anti-doping has never, ever really been reflected upon. Yes, we need anti-doping. It's fine. But actually, what's it for? And who's it for? And if you've got limited resources, how can you best use them to achieve what you want to achieve? And, you know, it sounds like you've got the opportunity to ask those kind of questions, which is great. Always go back to the fundamentals, right? I mean, (laughs) you can apply that to any area of life, whether it's education or coaching or even this, go back to the fundamentals and why are you doing things in the first place? Um, Paul, I appreciate your time, man. Um, We're going to leave it there. If you have any parting words of wisdom, if you can encapsulate the the entire four years of education you would, you would (laughs) opine on your students with, if you want to leave us with something there, I think the listeners would, would very much appreciate it. Well, primarily I'm really looking forward to seeing how this unfolds. (laughs) It could be something you could teach, right? Five years from now. A live live experiment. (laughs) Okay, well, um, we'll have to bring you back on once the solution unfolds, Paul. Uh, yeah, no, uh, it's really great to hear these discussions because, as you say, you're right. You know, oftentimes discussions either on one side of the table or the other side, and just to have a reasonable discussion, you know, with a bit of logic and a bit of pragmatism and a bit of sense of actually, we've got an opportunity here to rethink this, you know, to be careful in what we're doing, to try to protect our community, to try to protect our athletes. And to me, the, the word that always come, what I really recognize here as a powerful thing is the word community, because the World Dance to Open Code is a top-down document. It's heavily centralized, and it's people are forced, if you like, to take it on board. Whereas you have the opportunity to do something much more cooperative, much more mutually kind of acceptable and discussed, Um and I think it's great. I mean, it's much more, seems to me, potentially a much more democratic and a much more engaging way to do it. And if you even that process itself should make it work better because people won't see it as the enemy. They'll see it as something that they've contributed towards and had a part in developing. Um, and if you, I suppose my last point is, what do, you, what do your listeners want your community to be? And that's it, really. You know, you, if you are a community, you've got to want to be positive and proactive and healthy and fair. And if that's what you want, then, you know, that's what you'll get. I could not agree with you more. Once again, this is a situation where we're not going to get adopted into another rule framework. So we have, we as a community have to come up with it and it has to necessarily reflect the values and the ethos of the entire community. That's not easy. That's a lot of lip service and, you know, cliche, you know, things and, and whatnot. But, but, but it really, it really is an opportunity. And if we get it right, we can take a lot of credit for it and you can teach it in your class and it will be a great thing to learn from. But <laughs> if we, but if, but we're holding the bag if we do, if we fail to do anything. And yeah. I firmly believe that if we look back, we zoom out and we look back 10 years in 2031 and nothing was done. 
we're going to kick ourselves because we had all the incentive, all the opportunity, all of the wherewithal in the world. And people want it. Don't get me wrong. It's a matter of horsepower and willpower, right? And those are, those are hot commodities in the world today. Everybody has a limited amount of time, but if we don't do anything, the, the community as it currently stands, we are going to absolutely kick ourselves for not finding a solution before a problem emerges. Absolutely. We totally agree. Uh, wish you all good luck in it. Um, everybody who's involved and all your listeners who will be eventually part of it. And uh, yeah, I do hope it goes well. I look forward to getting some updates and seeing how it goes. We'll we'll circle back once something starts to emerge. I'm sure we'll <laughs> seek out. I'm sure we'll seek your counsel out offline once something does happen. I appreciate your time. I'll have links to the show notes about everything that we talked about. And uh, uh, finally, where can people find you on social media or do you just want to like hide away in a cave now that the semester is over with? <laughs> uh, well, I'm only really on Twitter. So it's just um, Paul DeMeo2 is uh, my name on that. Um, the University of Stirling is where I work in Scotland. So you could probably find me on that website. And you can find my email address there if anybody has any particular burning desire to ask me a further question, they're welcome to do so. Um, but it's been a great pleasure. I really enjoyed this discussion and um, it was very nice to be contacted by you. Um, it's been an honor discussing these things with you. And as I say, good luck to everyone involved. Well, thank you for your time, Paul. Thank you for the work that you've done on this. It's always great learning from people like you who have studied this topic so uh, into such depth. I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Jason. All right, folks, there you have it. Much thanks to Paul for coming on the podcast today. That was a really insightful conversation. I hope that everybody took a few nuggets of wisdom for that and has a little bit of a history lesson for how these things can sometimes go awry because I can guarantee you we can't repeat past mistakes on this. And I, I hope that some of the lessons that Paul and I went over, everybody really takes to heart as we start to formulate solutions uh, to things. Once again, if you missed the podcast last week with Dr. Fedoric from USADA, go ahead and check that out. Next week, we've got Lisa Roberts coming up. That'll be released on June 10th. The week after that, we have Charlie Ware coming up on June 17th to talk about a solution that he tried to actually formulate himself. And after that, I have a conversation with Dylan Bowman and Mario Frioli to really brainstorm what some of these solutions can look like on June 24th. I hope that everybody tunes in to all of these. The best way to do that is to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or your podcasting platform of choice and you get notified right when those things release. What do you think? We just went through two kind of sides of the equation, one with USADA and another one with uh, with Paul. Let me know what you think on social media. Hit me up. Talk with your friends, your family members, your fellow racers, your race directors. I want to know what the community thinks because we all have to start to play a part in finding these types of solutions. That's it for this week, folks. Appreciate the heck out of each and every one of you. And as always, we will see you out on the trails. Mm-hmm.